Thank you, Judith, for reading that so beautifully and clearly and powerfully. Let's pray, shall we, for a moment as we ask for God's help in uh, looking at his word together. Father God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for all the blessings that we enjoy in you. We thank you for the blessings of this weekend. And we ask now for your help, for you to be present amongst us as teacher, to bring your word alive in our hearts, so that our lives may give glory to you. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I was 19 years old. I was at university in my first year. And if I'm honest, I was secretly trying to impress some new friends I'd just made. So I decided it was time to try my hand at throwing a lunch party. The first step, of course, was to phone home to my mother and to download her recipe for fish pie. The guests were invited and the big day arrived. All seemed to be going well. Uh, my guests were enjoying a pre-lunch drink in my, in my rooms and I could hear the clink of glasses and the, the chatter and the music. And I was in the hall of residence kitchen putting the finishing touches to this fish pie that I'd lovingly created. I opened up the oven and though I say it myself, it smelled fantastic. Now, at this particular point, I, I reached into the oven to draw out the fish pie uh, that I'd lovingly prepared. And it was this point that my troubles began because the fish pie in the, in the bowl was a little bit hotter than I anticipated it being. But, with great presence of mind, I thought, OK, I need some extra tea towels here to um, get this pie out of the oven. So the oven door was, was flat down and as I drew the, the pie out, I, I put it down there on the oven door as I reached up to get these additional tea towels to um, be able to handle the dish. And it was at this point that my troubles really began because physics had not been my strong <laughs> subject at school. And the weight of the dish on the oven door now took it down below the horizontal. <laughs> And, and as I reached up to get these extra tea towels that I needed, my fish pie began to be launched down the oven door like a, one of those lifeboats going down the slipways into the sea uh, towards the floor. And it was as though everything went into slow motion for a moment. And uh, I saw this beginning to happen, and, and after years of uh, honing my cricket skills on the cricket pitch, my, my reactions are pretty good, and I reached down for the pie, and I was quick but I wasn't quick enough. <laughs> and my lovingly created fish pie was splattered all over the kitchen floor that the glass dish had, had shattered into pieces. And for a moment, I, I, I just stood, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Unable to take in... <laughs> the site in front of me. I could hear in the distance the chatter, the, the music, the, the glasses being chinked, the guests anticipating this, this lovely lunch. And I knew that lunch didn't really exist now in any meaningful, in any meaningful form. And I, 
I think it must have been the trauma of the event because irrational thoughts began to go through my mind like, well, perhaps if I get the biggest bits of glass out and, and, and just whip up a bit of extra veg, no one will notice. And that was a little unrealistic. And of course, I had to actually confess all and I went through to uh, my guests and, and they roared with laughter. And then they all came and, and sort of rather like over-eager tourists took a kind of <laughs> trip around this stricken pie in the middle of the kitchen floor. We all roared with laughter and uh, decided we'd go out for lunch somewhere. <laughs> well, thank you for listening. It's been very therapeutic for me to <laughs> just get that off my chest after nearly 20 years. Uh, but there is a link, albeit a somewhat tenuous one. There is a link to these verses uh, that we've just had read from chapter 6 of Ephesians. Because as we've been thinking throughout yesterday, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and by extension what he's writing to us, what he's doing is sketching out a vision of the cosmos that is pregnant with a, a harmony and a unity, a beauty, a coherence under Christ. Christ has made possible, Paul is saying, a, a, a harmony, a unity, a beauty, a coherence to which all things are headed. And Paul, as we've been thinking, has painted a picture of the Christian church as being a community in our life together, bear witness to that unity, that coherence, where everything is headed. As we said yesterday, the church has the coming soon trailers at the cinema of the main feature that is to come. And it's a, a wonderfully, for five chapters, it's a wonderfully warm and glowing, captivating image and vision that Paul sets forth. Like a lunch party, lovingly created with fragrant aromas and happy conversation. And then as we come into the final verses of the letter, Paul says to the Christians, wake up and get ready for cunning, vicious attacks of evil. We come crashing back down from the heavenly vision to earth with a bang fish pie and dish all over the floor. Why? Why does Paul end his letter in this way? Well, I would suggest it's this. Because Paul understands that the moment we as a Christian community take seriously our calling to live in the way that he's outlined in the previous five chapters, to take seriously our calling to be one, to have a diversity in our, our unity, to live lives that are marked by practical purity, to, to seek to have harmony in our relationships, all of which mirror what Christ has done and where the future is headed. The moment we do that, the spiritual powers and authorities that Paul has referred to several times throughout this letter are going to take a renewed interest in knocking us off that course of action. And Paul is saying... If you're going to live in anticipation of this vision that I've sketched out for you, you're going to have to be up for it because the spiritual powers are going to take a renewed interest in knocking you off track. As uh, a great friend and a great prayer, a man I, I used to work with would often say, no blessing goes uncontested. And that's what Paul is saying here. 
Now this isn't a recipe for fear. Paul is absolutely clear, and we've looked at this in the letter already, these powers and principalities opposed to God's ways in the world are defeated, they're under Christ's feet. Paul's been absolutely clear about that right at the beginning, at the end of chapter 1 of his letter. And just have a look back to chapter 2 and verse 6. We looked at this briefly yesterday. (coughs) Paul is under no illusion as to where we who are in Christ are situated. So chapter 2 and verse 6, he writes, God has raised us up with Christ and has seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. So Christ is above the powers and principalities, and if we are in Christ, then we are seated with Christ. But those powers and authorities who are under Christ's feet, and by extension under our feet if we're in Christ, are still thrashing about in the world and around our lives, trying to do all they can before they are finally eradicated, in the hope of robbing and stealing and destroying all that we have in Christ. That's how Jesus puts it in John's Gospel. He makes a very clear distinction. I've come that you may have life in all its fullness, but there is a a thief, the devil, who has come to, to rob, to steal and destroy. So the enemy has got a plan for your life. That's the bad news. But the good news is that in Christ, we are seated with him above those powers and principalities that want to steal, rob and destroy all that is ours in Christ. I'm sure you know, and as I learnt in my history lessons at school, in the Second World War, the decisive strike that effectively decided the outcome of the Second World War was the D-Day attack by the Allies against the Nazi forces, and that took place on June the 6th, 1944. To all intents and purposes, the outcome of the Second World War was secured by that decisive strike on D-Day. But, as I'm sure you'll know, it was over a year later before victory, V-Day, actually came about, and all hostilities and fighting finally ceased. And I don't know if you know this, but actually, the period between D-Day and Victory Day, in that period, there were more casualties and more lives lost than at any time in the previous part of the battle. In other words, the battle still raged with an intensity, even though the outcome was not in doubt. And Paul is saying, it's the same for us. The cross of Jesus Christ, as we were thinking about yesterday, was a decisive strike at those powers and principalities opposed to God's ways in the world. It was a victory which the resurrection showed to be the case. But the final realisation of that victory, that victory being made real in every area of our life and in our world, is yet to come. It will come when Christ returns in glory. And the last book of the Bible, Revelation, says... That will be the time when all suffering and pain and death will be dealt with. No more tears, no more struggle, no more suffering. It's an amazing picture the Bible paints. But of course, in the meantime, we live as Christians, as those who know, to put it in simple terms, that in Christ we are on the winning side, but who need to be aware of the defeated but still active and thrashing about enemy that we face. 
So, how then do we defend our position? That's what Paul is addressing in these verses. And his answer is in verse 11. We defend our position by putting on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, as I mentioned briefly yesterday, Paul is writing from prison and in all probability is next to a a prison guard, a a Roman soldier, perhaps he's chained to one. And it would seem that perhaps the the way that he then outlines what this armour of God looks like may be inspired by looking at the sort of things that this uh, soldier, this prison guard, is wearing. The metaphor of the soldier's armour. But let me, if if I may, give you a slightly more... um, Recent example from my own experience, and uh, Tim mentioned at the start of the weekend my interest in sport and particularly in cricket. And uh, I had the opportunity when I was studying theology with Tim at Oxford to play some cricket for the university side. I was very much an amateur cricketer, but we played against some sides who were professional and even some international players. So we were up against some pretty uh, impressive players. And in one of the first matches that I played in, I found myself going out to to bat, going out to the wicket to bat on a hot summer's day in a game uh, played against Yorkshire with quite a few people dotted around the boundary, um, sunning themselves and enjoying this game of cricket. And I found myself going out to bat against the guy who now opens the bowling for the England cricket team, a guy called Matthew Hoggard. Now, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) don't really need to say any more, do I? It was a hot summer's day, there were quite a few hundred people around the boundary and they were in their shorts and their flip-flops and they had their picnic rugs out and they were enjoying a nice glass of something and some strawberries and I suppose I could have taken the view, well this is a lovely convivial setting and it's a beautiful summer's day and perhaps I too will just wander out to the crease to (laughs) occupy my position, perhaps in my shorts, perhaps in my flip-flops, perhaps with a sun hat on. But of course if I'd done that, well it would have been madness. Because there, (laughs) the wicket is 22 yards, and so he was probably another 20 yards further back from there. So 40 or so yards away from me was this young, strong, Yorkshire, fast bowler about to run in at me with this hard red ball (laughs) that from 22 yards away, he was going to send down at about 85 miles an hour giving me somewhere in the region of 0.4 to 0.5 of a second to react to where that ball was coming and where it might hit me. (laughs) And if that wasn't hostile enough, I soon discovered that after sending this ball in my direction, he also had a good grasp of some um, Anglo-Saxon, shall we say, that he was happy to let come in my direction after he'd bowled the ball in towards me. So... Far from sauntering out in my sunglasses and my shorts and my flip-flops, let me tell you what I was wearing. I was wearing boots with a reinforced toe cap. I was wearing pads on each of my legs. I was wearing a a five-pad here and a five-pad here. I was also wearing some other protective equipment in that area, but I'll spare the details. I was wearing an arm guard. I was wearing gloves. I was wearing a helmet with a visor. And I had a bat with which to try and defend myself and... uh, hit the ball. Now, that was all kit that I had. It was mine. I owned it. I just had to make sure I was putting it on. 
Because basically, in that situation, I needed to be up for the encounter. If I was going to occupy the position that I had a perfectly good right to go out and occupy, but someone was intent on dislodging me from that position, I had to be up for that encounter. And what Paul is saying here is that you have the right in Christ to occupy that position. In Christ, you too are seated above the powers and the principalities that want to undermine and spoil and make a mess of your life. But if you're going to stay secure in that position you rightly occupy, you've got to be up for the encounter. You've already got the armour, Paul is saying. Do you remember the illustration yesterday? The guy who wanted the piece of art and discovered it was actually in his own warehouse. It's yours, but you've got to make sure you're standing in it. You're standing firm in it. And I think it's worth saying that whilst we've been thinking a lot over the last 24 hours about collectively how together as a community we reflect God's nature to the world around, there's also an element here of personal responsibility in each of us taking seriously our personal responsibility to stand firm in our position in Christ. And of course we do that as a community, encouraging each other and supporting each other, standing with one another. So Paul says, put on the full armour of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand and after everything's been hurled at you, to stand. Well, what does that armour look like? Let's have a quick look. And we're going to look at this a bit more in the small groups in a moment. Verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt of truth. Well, the Bible is God's word and is God's truth to us. One way, I suppose, of putting into practice what it means to gird ourselves with the truth would be to take God's word seriously, to find ways of and times to study it, to meditate upon it, to feed upon it in a way that enables us to see things as they really are. It might not just be reading the Bible, it might be listening to tapes or CDs or talks, feed, feeding ourselves with the truth, Christian teaching about God's message from the Bible. He then goes on to say, uh, the breastplate of righteousness in place. One of the great discoveries of the Reformation, and particularly through a man called Martin Luther, was that the righteousness that we're called to exercise is not a righteousness that we have to work our way up to, a kind of right living that we have to attain to. It's a righteousness that is God's free gift to us, imputed righteousness. Something that Christ has made possible, it's God's initiative It's a being made right with God, which is his free gift, his free offer through his son, Jesus Christ, if we will respond in trust, in faith, and receive it as a gift. And Paul's understanding is that this righteousness that God gives us then organically should begin to bear the fruit of right living, righteous living in our lives. He says, be ready, have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I sometimes think of that as a, a readiness to, to speak about my faith when an opportunity presents itself. Uh, we talked about that a bit in our discussions yesterday evening. Sometimes it's surprising the moments, the opportunities that come to put into words the faith that we're trying to live out in our lives. I, I described to you yesterday the conversation I had when I first was at Oxford and began training with the cricket side with the captain who, when I told him I was training to become a vicar, asked if I had a good singing voice. 
Well, as I, as I played in that team, the big game at the end of the season is the varsity match between Oxford and Cambridge. In one sense, my, my, my aim, my hope was I would be selected for that team to play for Oxford against Cambridge at Lords. Quite a big occasion. And uh, I managed to be selected for the team and as the, the big game came round and cricket, I don't know if you know, but it's, those games are played over three days. So you spend quite a lot of time on the pitch together. And I'm a wicketkeeper, which means I'm in that position behind the stumps with the gloves on, and I have to expect every ball that's bowled to, to come to me and be concentrating and ready to, to catch it. And standing next to me, fielding next to me, was this guy, who, uh, the one who'd said to me, you know, so why are you becoming vicar? Is it because you, you, you know, you've got a good singing voice? And I was so focused on this game. Finally, I'd realised my ambition to play in this match, and here we were playing at Lords. I'd never played there before. I was just totally focused on, on doing my bit to not let the side down, to catch the ball if it came my way. And as the game is going on, this guy next to me says, um, So, Jez, why do you believe in God? LAUGHTER not now, I'm just, try, I'm just trying to make sure, I, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna mess this up, I just wanna catch the ball, do we really have to? So I, I said, well, well, you know, because, I, well I suppose if you wanna know if there's a God, well, you, you have to look at the person of Jesus. He's, he's really the, the, the main way in which God has revealed himself to us. Another ball coming <laughs> and, uh, and he sort of thought about this for a moment, then you kind of change ends every six balls, so we're at the other end, and, and, and so, you know, the game's going on, and he says, well, um, well, how do we know? You know, how do we know about... <laughs> How do we know about Jesus? <laughs> right, um, okay, well, because, well, I mean, look, if you want to know about Jesus, the Gospels really are the place we have different accounts of the life of Jesus. The Bible, the Gospels are the place really where we'd, we'd, we'd get to, right, take the ball. So then we, you know, another overchange, we're down the other end, and he says, well, how, how do we know that what we've got written in the Gospels is, is, you know, what was originally? Oh, my goodness. And the long and short of it, in this most unexpected of settings, <laughs> the middle of Lord's cricket pitch, um, I found myself having quite a long conversation about God, about Jesus, about the Gospels, about how we would, what faith means to me, and how he might want to uh, explore it, or what that would look like for him. <laughs> A feat, fittedness with the readiness to, to share the gospel when moments, even unexpected moments, arise. In addition, says Paul, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the arrows, the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield of faith. Faith cannot coexist with fear. And it's love, God's unconditional love, that drives fear out of our lives. And I often think of Faith is being taking hold of a promise of God, promise of God we, we read in the scriptures, and daring to believe it. Daring to believe it. God, you, your word says that you love me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Is that really how you see me? If that really is how you see me, how do I begin to line up my life with seeing myself as you see me? How do I exercise faith? And faith is like a muscle. I mean, imagine lifting up a shield on a regular occasion. You'd begin to exercise and strengthen the muscle. And faith is like a muscle. It grows as we exercise it. Take the helmet of salvation, says Paul. The helmet of salvation. Again, going back to Martin Luther in the Reformation. Had this wonderful analogy. He said, none of us can stop the birds circling around our heads. And for him, the birds here represented that the kind of the lies, the tempting thoughts that the devil would send our way. None of us can stop the birds circling around our heads, but we can stop them making their nests in our hair. Now, as we can choose whether we're going to allow those thoughts to come in and to take root 
And we looked yesterday at the pattern of that leads to how it's outworked in our lives. And so I love this idea of the helmet of salvation, having in our mind, in our thinking, on our, on our, around our heads, taking every thought captive for Christ, being renewed in our thinking. That there are three tenses to this salvation, that because of God's initiative in Christ, I'm saved. That process of salvation is being continually worked out in my life now. And there will come a time when I'm fully saved and all the ramifications of that saving work of Christ will be made real. Put on that helmet of salvation, says Paul. And the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Then if you've ever noticed in the Gospel accounts when Jesus is tested and tempted in the wilderness by the devil, in those accounts that we read, he replies and responds to the devil's testing thoughts, those birds circling around his head with verses of scripture. And actually the verses of scripture come from one part of the Bible, Deuteronomy. So some commentators think perhaps Jesus was particularly meditating on that part of the scriptures and that was part of his armory in warding off the tempting thoughts, the lies that the devil uh, was sending in his direction. The sword of the spirit, the word of God. And Paul then says, look, this isn't just about sort of being defensive and securing our position, though that's important. If I go out to bat, I don't just want to stay there and occupy the crease. I want to start scoring some runs. I want to start getting on top of the opposition, taking ground, making forward movements. And so Paul says in verse 18, we go on the offensive. How? Well, we pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. You know that little saying, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on their knees. Prayer. Prayer is our primary weapon. And then, of course, that leads to to action, to engagement, to generous involvement in the world. Well, does all this make any difference, you might ask? Well, let me just give you one example to finish with. We looked very briefly yesterday, we didn't really have much time, but we looked in chapter 5 at how one of the areas, that, one of the relationship areas that Paul talks about and uh, says be harmonious in this relationship is the, the marriage relationship of husband and wife as part of that, uh, the relationships in the extended household. And I came across some statistics from the United States recently where on average one marriage in every three ends in divorce. And please don't misunderstand me, I'm not speaking here about divorce lightly. I know divorce is a very real subject and uh, may well be a sensitive subject to people in this room. So I'm not speaking about it lightly. But whereas in the States the, the average is one marriage in three ending in divorce, I came across these statistics. When a couple is married in church, attends church regularly together, prays together and reads the Bible together, those statistics change to uh, statistics of one in 1,105 marriages ending in divorce. Now, divorce is a, a, a sensitive subject. I'm aware of that. Of course, it takes two to tango to make a relationship work. But let me ask you this question, and it's rhetorical because I think we all know the answer. Do you think the spiritual powers and forces opposed to God's ways in the world want to see marriages flourish. Consistent loving relationships in which children can be brought up, nurtured. 
the family unit as a building block for our society and our social cohesion. That's just one example. There could be many examples we could draw out of this teaching of Paul's. So he's saying, wake up. There is a battle on. Recognize the battle you're in. You have all the armory. It's yours in Christ. But be alert. Be ready to put it on, to stand firm in it. So you're not robbed of everything that is yours in Christ. Why is there a battle on? Because the vision is so attractive. Let me end with this. John Santamu, who was formerly a bishop in the area where I now work as a clergyman, the Bishop of Stepney, and who is now the Archbishop of York. And again, if I may add a personal comment, personally, I think it's a wonderful thing that a black Ugandan Christian now occupies the second highest position of authority in the Church of England. And when he was inaugurated as an Archbishop, um, I think it was a couple of years ago now, in his sermon on that occasion, he quoted Victor Hugo, who said, there is one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, and that's an idea whose time has come. And he said this, God's idea, which has lasted over the centuries, is simply this, a mixed community of sinners called saints, called to be saints. A divine society where the risen Christ in the midst of it is grace and truth and the Holy Spirit is at work within it. An inclusive and generous friendship where each person is affirmed of infinite worth, dignity and influence. A community of love overflowing in gratitude and wholehearted surrender because of its participation in the life of God. Well, I think that Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, could hardly have put it better himself. Let's pray for a moment and then we're going to go to our small groups. Father, we thank you for the vision you set before us in your word. We thank you. These aren't just pretty words. This is real, substantive stuff that makes a difference to our lives. Thank you for that great saying of the church father Irenaeus. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Help us to increasingly be a community of people fully alive in you. And show us, show us this morning, we pray, where we need to stand firm against all the things and all the forces that would seek to undermine that. So we ask for your grace and your wisdom and your revelations. We continue to ponder these things together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> We're running slightly over, but I think it's been worth it, hasn't it? It's just yeah. so good to be and to God's work. Jess, thank you so much for the work and preparation. Um, what I suggest is, why don't we, why don't we go across small groups and kind of...
Obviously, you can use the discussion time in the groups in a way to talk about anything that struck you that you'd like to, but, but perhaps I'd recommend that you might want to open up the Bibles and just look again at those verses in chapter 6, the, the different parts of the armour, and just allow that to ask the question, what are the bits particularly that, that maybe I need to reappropriate more in my life? Where, where are the areas of vulnerability for me? What is that, how does that work out? How does that play out in my life today? So you might want to just use those different parts of the armour as, as a part of your discussion in the group.